Welcome to another episode. This is Candon, and I'm joined today by the Rebecca's to talk about a favorite wild woman in Washington, D.C. This is Tour Guide Tell All, and this week we're going to tell you about one of the most famous women in America you've probably never heard of. It's the story of Evelyn Walsh McLean, whose daddy struck it rich, and then she went on a lifelong spending spree, married an equally spoiled rich kid turned alcoholic, and led a relatively tragic life. So we actually recorded this episode back in April or May or March, <laughs> sometime that feels equally so long ago, but also only like last week. So what I think is most depressing is that at one point in this episode, we'll make a comment about the Smithsonian's being closed. And y'all, they still are. So hopefully you're enjoying this episode from the safety of your bubble at home or if you're in the car, because that's where I listen to my podcast, don't forget to put on your mask when you get out. Okay, so on the show notes for this episode, there is one big note at the top that says, can we get the rights to a Cole Porter song? Now, I assume that was from Becca, but let's start with why do you ask? I mean, no, we can't. Uh, so please don't sing it. But Becca, why? Why Why do you ask this? So why? So we're talking about Evelyn Walsh McLean, and she was one of the most famous women in America. And I think it's hard today with kind of celebrity culture to think about someone in the 1920s, 1910s, 1930, being as that famous as people are today. But Evelyn Walsh McLean was, she was so famous that she took this big trip to Russia and Cole Porter wrote about her in one of her songs. And this is where I turn my chair backwards and I lean over to show teenagers how hip I am. Cole Porter was like a rapper in that he would drop references to the hottest chicks, the most important people and all the tabloid drama. And so the fact that she gets referenced in this Cole Porter song is definitely a testament to the fact that she was like a Kardashian, that level of notoriety and fame. And the line is when Mrs. Ned McLean, God bless her, can get Russian reds to yes sir, then I suppose anything, anything goes. goes. And people back then would have heard that and been like, oh yeah, Mrs. Ned McLean, that's Evelyn people would have known what that meant. So that's how totally crazy famous she was. So when we talk about all the crazy stuff that happens in our life, this really is playing out in the newspapers, in the tabloids, and it, it's, it's gossip. It's what everybody is talking about. In olden days, a glimpse of stocking was looked on as something shocking. Hey, sorry. no singing it. I'm sorry. Now they've been, they've rewritten Anything Goes and the, Ned, uh, the Mrs. Ned McLean reference is often dropped in more modern versions. But if you go to the old timey, like Cole Porter singing this song at his piano, it's in there, which I, I am a big nerd. Or listeners, if you share this with 10 people and then they share it with 10 people, then everyone knows who Mrs. Ned McLean in is. And then Broadway will feel like they should bring it back. Yes, <laughs> I agree. Also, if you love Cole Porter as much as me, you can hit me up on our Twitter because I love Cole Porter the way that normal people love like Beyonce. That's how much I love Cole Porter. I'm very <laughs> That hip. is not an exaggeration. No, that is not, not even close to an exaggeration. <laughs> she loves Cole Porter almost as much as she loves Lincoln. Which we already know if you've listened to earlier episodes, that is quite a lot. 
Well, Porter is a little bit uh, easier to hum than the Emancipation Proclamation. Okay, so let's get into this week's episode. Rebecca, why don't you, why Evelyn? Why, why do, why are we going to talk about her? Um, well, uh, Evelyn Walsh McLean has a fabulous life. She's very wealthy and she has a gorgeous mansion that we pass on our tours and talk about. She is also most notably the reason anyone would have heard of her other than Cole Porter. Uh, she is the last, nope. I, I think we, I think we should wait. Okay. So she's really wealthy and fabulous and she has a life that is kind of equal parts glamorous and flashy and kind of tragic and sad. There's jewelry, there's furs, there's cars, there's kids, there's, there's a bear, there's a bear, there's trips to Europe. (laughs) It's the Kentucky Derby is involved. I mean, it's kind of a big deal. Um, She's yeah, she's kind of a big deal. She reminds me a lot of uh, a topic we did early on, Alice Roosevelt Longworth, and that I feel like Evelyn Walsh McLean, especially in DC, has connections everywhere. She's connected to DuPont, Embassy Row. She's connected to Georgetown. She's connected to Smithsonian. She's connected to um, kind of our a lot of our scandal tours. Um, she's connected to Warren G. Harding, which we'll talk about. So she is a little like Forrest Gump in that she keeps popping up in these really, really important important moments she's also connected to charles Lindbergh. like she's connected yeah. to most of the people we've already talked about she literally lived across the street from alice roosevelt longworth like yeah of course <laughs> super and her home today is an embassy so she's pretty cool so let's let's start with with Evelyn's life. Evelyn um, is born in Colorado, very humble upbringing. Her father is an Irish immigrant. Um, everything starts out very scrappy, young life, and then she's twelve, and her dad discovers a literal gold mine. So he's like that one in a million guy who goes out digging and is like, oh, there's a whole mine full of gold. And she wrote her autobiography later in life. And Rebecca, you were the one who told me the title of her book. Father strikes it rich. (laughs) Which is basically what happened. Her father struck it rich and they become millionaires many times over overnight. So her life changes radically. At 14, the the family decides they're going to go to Europe. She's sent to Paris to pursue quote unquote singing lessons and she goes wild. Imagine being 14 in the 1890s, having endless money. She just goes crazy. So she's already a bit of a wild child and her father, Thomas Walsh, decides that he needs to at least try to bring her up with a little bit more respectability. So he is going to gift her something very lovely, a brand new mansion on Massachusetts Avenue. This is new money, like run amok. He spends an insane amount of money. And the house was completed in 1903. When it was built, it was the most expensive residence in DC. They spent $835,000 in 1900 money so let's say today 24 million or so if you adjust for inflation and then to decorate it over the next few years they spend another 2 million in 1900 money so about 60 million today and i mean this is not a tasteful simple mansion it is art nouveau it is is baroque nothing tasteful (laughs) like just um, divorce that idea from your mind this is new money crazy it is it was at the time the largest private home in washington dc the only home that was larger was a house you may have heard of called the white house so (laughs) and this was definitely gaudier this was oh my gosh this is so flashy and just delightful there's 
in the house a, a theater, which in those days was huge. Yeah. Uh, they had a salon and a conservatory, and they had uh, one of these cruise ship style, like windy staircases that you've seen, like a the three-deck sort of promenade. Yes. Reportedly, Thomas Walsh, uh, when they were building the house, he reportedly came out with a brick of gold and buried it in the foundation so that they would always remember that the house and their fortune is built uh, on a literal foundation of gold, which is Oof. so like on the nose, I can't even deal. But yeah, there's nothing tasteful about this house. Imagine having so much gold amazing. you can afford to just inlay some bars of it into like the foundation. It's goals, man. It's goals. <laughs> it, it's gold goals yes. for sure. So this is her gift. She's 17 when this is completed. It's gifted to her. Um, and they use it to really buy her some respectability. Uh, her mother, who had been a teacher and now is a millionaire's wife, uh, starts to host Friday evening dance classes so she can, uh, her daughter Evelyn can mix and mingle with uh, young men of good breeding. And it is there that she meets Edward Beale McLean, better known as Ned. Ned is going to be, I, I'm trying to think the right way to say this. I think That's when we talk about Evelyn Walsh McLean, I think. Yeah, um, when we talk about Evelyn Walsh McLean, we often talk about her being cursed um, because of things that happened. But I think meeting Ned was maybe the real curse because he is make um, great decisions in her he life. He does not. <laughs> she's she, the son she of not. a very. <laughs> he's the son of a very wealthy publishing family. He's a classic spoiled rich boy. Like if he this was in the 1980s, he'd be played by James Spader. That's who I see when I see Edward Ned McLean. Um, no disrespect to James Spader if you listen to this podcast. I love your work. Huge. I love your work. You're the best. <laughs> but that's Ned. So he was said to have been like a party boy at the age of 14, already running around town with women as a young man, already known to drink uh, twice as much as men, twice his age. And the two of them meet and they fall in love because they're two peas in a pod. They're spoiled, 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 and rich, rich, rich. They elope from Colorado um, to save the money on a wedding. They figure, why even bother with a fancy wedding? Each of their families will give them $100,000 for them to take a long extended uh, honeymoon through Europe and the Middle East. Now that's $200,000, again, early 1900s. So we're talking about millions of dollars today. Is that enough money for the two of them? No. It is no. definitely not. They spent every penny and more and more and more. They traveled with one Mercedes, but they got to Paris. They were tired of having to share the one car. So they bought a second Mercedes while in Paris. As you do. While they were there, they went to a French jeweler named Cartier and they bought something very, very special, a piece of jewelry that is not usually what's associated with Evelyn Walsh McLean. It's something called the Star of the East Diamond. 92.5 carats. This is a humongous diamond. Back then, they called it the carafe stopper because it was big enough that you could use it to stop up a wine carafe. So she, she bought that for $120,000. Yeah, $120,000. So if they only had $200,000, she spent, oh, 60% of it buying a diamond. So that's how Evelyn rolled. I also love that they decided to pause on have run away rather than have a marriage that or a wedding that they could obviously both afford an elaborate wedding they so. decided to spend that money on themselves and not waste it on feeding other people or, or giving them alcohol 
which I think illustrates who they are. One of my favorite things too about the Star of the East diamond is that they didn't want to pay customs on it because it was, you know, $120,000. So she just smuggled it in. It's not even that she didn't want to pay customs. It was by the time they got back from this vacation, they were flat broke. They had spent all their cash. And so she needed to come back to daddy to get more money. So they basically smuggled the diamond in so they could avoid the customs fee. Now, I mentioned that diamond, but that is not the diamond that Evelyn Walsh McLean is famous for. Rebecca, which one is she famous for? Evelyn Walsh McLean is famous uh, because she's the last private owner of the Hope Diamond. The Hope Diamond, for those of you who are unaware, is a 45 carat blue diamond. Uh, diamonds do come in blue. They're very, very rare. And the Hope Diamond has a series of curses associated with it. It first pops up. It was sold to King Louis XIV, the Sun King uh, in France. Uh, it was known as the French Blue back then, part of the uh, French crown jewels. And everybody who seems to be associated with it after Louis kind of comes to a bad end. Uh, Louis XVI eventually ends up with it. And as we all know, he loses everything from the neck up. You know, the diamond then kind of gets lost, resurfaces about 20 years later. It's been cut down significantly to what it is today, about 45 carats, which is still huge and very significant, uh, but it resurfaces in the London diamond market. It's eventually going to be purchased by uh, a family of jewelers called the Hopes, and they give their name to it. And it's got a bunch of really tragic, uh, people come to tragic ends. There are suicides, there's marriages breaking up, people die and get sick, and it's all very terrible. And there's this sort of curse uh, associated with it. And so in 1911, it is in the control of the jeweler Cartier. And Cartier has decided that Evelyn Walsh McLean is exactly the kind of person who's going to buy this diamond. Because she'd already waltzed into Cartier and spent $120,000 that she probably didn't have. Right. He knows a mark when he sees one. Let's not <laughs> lie about this. Like this is, you know, and I have heard, diff there are different versions that I have heard about how they come to acquire the diamond. And so I feel like I'll tell the story I've heard and you can tell me. This is one of those where everyone involved has told a different version of the story and different versions during their life. So if you've heard a different version, that would not surprise me. And I have the feeling they each told whatever version made them look best. Yes. That's kind of how I feel about this. So the version that I like the best, not to say that this is the real version, but it's the version I like, um, is that um, she agrees to purchase it. And keeps Cartier keeps it to clean it and sort of probably make sure their check doesn't bounce. Uh, and the idea is that he's going to come over to Washington with it uh, a few months later. And he does. And he comes to her mansion and he presents her with the diamond. And she just isn't really feeling it. So the ideas of the curse have gotten to her and she's just not as into the diamond as she had been. Well, when you been. already have a 92 carat diamond, what's a, what's a 24 carat one or a 42 right. carat one? She <laughs> clearly has other jewelry. This is not a woman who's hurting for jewels. And so she says, you know, I th I'm sorry, I'm just going to pass on the diamond. And so Cartier, you know, he says, okay, well, I understand. And uh, he's getting ready to leave, packing up his stuff in her house and he's getting ready to walk walk out the front door and as he's leaving he sort of pauses and he you know kind of turns back and he says Mrs. McLean I really I hate to impose on you but 
I'm staying at a hotel and they don't really have the kind of security that I would like <laughs> for a diamond of this value. And, you know, I hadn't anticipated having to bring it back to the hotel. And would you mind just holding on to the diamond for a couple of days? I have other business in town and I'll come get it before I leave. And of course, Mrs. McLean is very accommodating. She wants to help out. Uh, and so she says, absolutely, I'm happy to hold on to it. And this is why when you go to the pet store, they put the puppy in your hands because <laughs> it's harder to say no. And so she walks around with this beautiful blue diamond set in a necklace for three days and she falls in love with it. And exactly what Cardia had hoped would happen. Uh, he comes back a couple days later and she's changed her mind completely. She wants to purchase the Hope Diamond. So um, I like that version because I, I absolutely believe that Cartier, the minute she had already spent all that money on her honeymoon, he was like, I got a customer for life. I'm going to sell this woman so much jewelry, which he did. Lots of other pieces in addition to these. Um, the story that gets written in um, Evelyn Walsh McLean's autobiography um, is a little bit more, uh, I think, sort of to the point, which is she had seen that Cartier had this diamond, had thought about buying it, thought about buying it, finally tells her husband, I want it. So in uh, 1911, Ned McLean, uh, who we mentioned he was part of a publishing family. Uh, the family owned the Washington Post at this time. So he is every publisher's son. He's like involved at the Post, but not super good at it. But he was always there. And if you read stories of people who worked with him, they'd be like, yeah, Ned McLean would bring in these crazy people and conduct personal business in the Washington Post offices. And apparently one of those deals was to bring in Cartier and basically negotiate over the Hope Diamond. And also probably at the same time, they're having like five martini lunches would be my guess. Very much so. Um, <laughs> Ned McLean, yeah. We'll get to Ned and his shenanigans in a moment. But they negotiate the purchase, $180,000. So today about $5 million for the Hope Diamond. So real money. One interesting thing is the clause in the sales contract. Ned McLean at this point knows that there are various curses and tragedies associated with this diamond. He wants to make sure that he's not getting a bum deal. So a clause was written into the sales contract. Should any fatality occur to the family of Edward Beale McLean within six months, the said Hope Diamond is agreed to be exchanged for jewelry of an equal value. So it's basically within six months, I can just uh, get another diamond. And amazingly enough, Cartier like agrees to this. He's like, oh, okay, yeah, that sounds good. What's hilarious too is that Ned McLean is then slow to get the money to <laughs> Cartier, the agreed upon amount. And there's a bunch, a bunch of back and forth between them, little legal back and forth over how much it was going to cost and what it was going to do. McLean's mother dies in that six months, although not at all related. She was an old lady uh, and dies, but he tries to use that to lower the price. Cartier doesn't let him. So what we see from the McLean side, they see themselves as these savvy negotiators. <laughs> I think the real version is probably somewhere in the middle um, where Cartier maybe fleece them a little bit. And it also seems to me that Cartier kind of lays it on a little thick about the curse too, yeah. just because just to sort of, you know, grease the wheels. And in fact, Evelyn buys this thinking, oh, pff, this curse is ridiculous. I could, this I could is, beat yeah. the curse. Yeah. What could possibly go wrong? Right. What could possibly go wrong? And she starts getting these letters from 
a previous owner. She starts to get, there's a lot of press coverage and there's a lot of like, hey, this is bad news for realsies. You should maybe think about getting rid of this. And about a year after she purchases it, she actually is going to write to Cartier and be like, yeah, I'm sorry. I don't want this thing. I want to give it back to you. I'm going to invoke this clause. And Cartier is like, yeah. That was a six month. You had six months. You had six months, <laughs> man. You're done. You, you, you bought it. And she actually will take the Hope Diamond to a Catholic church out in Maryland mm-hmm. and ask a priest to perform an exorcism on it, which he does. And so she figures, okay, we're good. We've like exorcised the demons, you know, like we're good now. And so she brings it back and continues to wear it. And then. <laughs> so you can imagine we're like 1911. She gets it exercised in 1912. The Walsh McLeans are living the high life. And I want to mean the high life. They are exceptionally rich. We're talking 1% of the 1%. They are super connected. They are friends with everybody. Mm -hmm. Uh, Their wealth is actually astonishing. We've talked about some people who are wealthy on this podcast, but not this level of wealth. These are people who travel with private railroad cars. They have summer mansions in Bar Harbor and Palm Beach. They're rumored to have the largest liquor collection in DC, even during prohibition, um, bigger than any other member of Congress. They throw insane parties, parties on a massive scale. Senator Bora, who you might remember from our Alice Roosevelt Longworth episode, Mm -hmm. I won't tell you why, you'll have to go listen if you haven't once went to their party and sniffed this sort of thing is what brings on a revolution these people had money and they threw it around they had a new year's eve party that the new york times covered and they documented that the mcleans and their guests drank 288 fifths of scotch 480 quarts of champagne 40 gallons of beer 35 bottles of liquor and 48 quarts of cocktails yeah so, I mean, understandable, but I guess in quarantine perspective, I'm like, I get it. That makes yeah, sense. Yeah, let's do it. But you have these big, huge parties, you have all this alcohol, and then you also have this incredible diamond that everybody's heard about. So what does Evelyn do? She brings the diamond out. It's her favorite party trick. There's a gentleman who works for the Smithsonian, and he found a picture of his mother sitting on their couch at a party. She was a government clerk who'd been there to, like, drop something off, and Evelyn had put the diamond on this man's mother in, like, the 1940s. Yeah. So. They put the diamond on everyone. She would pass it around. She'd show it off. She started to kind of play up this incredible story of the diamond. She would put it on Warren G. Harding, uh, President Harding, when he would come. It's just like it becomes sort of their signature thing. The diamond, though, is what everyone really remembers her for. Um, But I think it's important to maybe talk about Ned and talk about what impact he ultimately has on her life because he's a problem. Ned is bad news, you guys. If our lead-in was not enough of a clue, yeah, the alcoholism is very real. It's very real. Um, and it's beyond, you know, Evelyn herself likes to have a good time. She likes to have fun. But even before they married, she insisted that he cut back even by the time he was 20. Um, he was drinking to an excess to a point that even Evelyn at that time was like, this is not going to be sustainable. Throughout their marriage, she tries to get him to cut back, but he never really can. Uh, he gets introduced to Warren G. Harding um, by Alice Roosevelt Longworth with the hope maybe that Harding would be a good influence on uh, Ned, but I think the opposite thing happened. This is where you know you've gone off the rails when you're hoping Warren Harding will be a good influence on anyone. <laughs> Dude. 
Um, but I, instead, I think Ned ends up bringing out like a really, uh, or, or just uh, enables, I should say, uh, a side of Harding that we can maybe talk about more in um, another episode uh, of this podcast. But it, imagine, you know, the typical rich guy shenanigans. They go out, they buy out restaurants, they party with chorus girls. They're constantly gambling. At one party in New York, uh, they encourage the girls to get up and dance on the table. And while they're taking everything off the table so the girls can dance on it, one of the chorus girls gets hit in the head with a water bottle and she's knocked unconscious. She'll be carried off and ultimately die. All of that swept under the rug because it's Warren Harding and Ned McLean. And so he's got the media connection. Harding has the political connections. So this is like uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald and Zelda, except multiplied by millions of dollars. Yeah. And by like more political connection, like truly like with the man who would become president of the United States. Um, one of my, this is like, I mean, they're not funny stories, but they're interesting. Uh, Ned McLean one time got drunk and bought a pet seal and kept a pet seal as you do. Um, he would feed it whiskey every day because I guess that's what he thought was the best thing to do with it. Even more. Well, he was drinking it. Why shouldn't the seal have some? Even more ridiculous than a seal is he was down in Palm Beach, which um, both Palm Beach and Bar Harbor historians have written books about Ned McLean's partying in each of those cities. Bar Harbor Babylon is the one about Bar Harbor. And Ned McLean was, was legendary for his partying in these places. But in Palm Beach, he bought a trained bear off of a circus. He starts feeding the bear booze and decides later that night he's going to bring the bear with him to a, um, how do I say this politely? A house of ill repute. Oh dear. A um, a uh, you know, a place where women sell their wares. But he thinks what could go wrong? Except he's got a drunk bear, and the bear's gonna maul two women, one almost to death. Who couldn't have seen that coming? Could have happened to anybody, really. Could have happened to anybody. <laughs> it is so bad though that when Ned's father dies, he does not leave the Washington Post to Ned. So as an adult male, uh, his father knew that like he couldn't trust the post with Ned. Um, he basically in his will is like, Ned gets nothing. Um, I'm gonna set up a, a trust, a group of trustees to run the Washington Post. I don't want Ned to have any part of this. Uh, in fact, at the end of his life, he had bodyguards um, protecting him because he thought Ned was gonna come and try to assassinate him. So there was some very complicated emotions um, there. But Evelyn, as a good supportive wife, actually fights for Ned to become a co-trustee of the Washington Post. It's a very long legal battle. It takes several years. They're basically going to throw money at the problem, um, but she's going to do that so that Ned can run the Post. Ned's going to pay her back by getting involved with the biggest scandal of the day. teapot dome <laughs> yeah yeah that's how he's gonna repay all of her hard work to get him into to be a co-trustee of the washington post and he gets caught up in teapot dome so teapot dome is very complicated and we're gonna do the short short version here short short version ned's pal warren harding has become president and warren harding is less than discriminatory about the men that he installs in his cabinet. For example, one guy that he puts in his cabinet was a man that he met on a plane somewhere and he just really liked him. So he invites him to be part of the presidential cabinet. So Warren Harding is not really discerning, shall we say. And so they get involved and the Teapot Dome scandal 
Teapot Dome is a place in Wyoming. Uh, and it essentially involves, uh, there's a bunch of uh, guys who want to extract oil. They don't go through the normal government processes to get a government contract. They're just given the ability to mine Teapot Dome. And it becomes a huge Cronyism was a thing back then too? Amazingly, yes. It really, <laughs> really, really was. And it's endlessly complicated as these scandals generally tend to be, but that's basically the bullet points. And Ned kind of gets involved because one of he trusts the wrong guy, basically. This guy <laughs> says, you know, I wasn't involved. And Ned's like, oh, obviously he wasn't involved. And it ends badly is basically it. Ned, because he's already famous, because he's uh, connected to Evelyn and this diamond, because they're friends with Warren Harding, he makes a juicy sort of side uh, show to this entire Teapot Dome scandal. So he's even in his own newspaper kind of splashed up all over the place uh, as being involved in this huge presidential insidery trading kind of scandal. Yeah, and he's sort of held up, I think, as the first kind of example of what Teapot Dome begats, right, is like these rich men who can go around the rules and the regulations, um, these men who have access to these things without going through the proper channels. So he's sort of held up as like this example of cronyism in the Harding administration. So it becomes very, very embarrassing for the McLeans. It's embarrassing for the Harding administration, and it's embarrassing for Evelyn. Evelyn is a lot of things but on top of that she's is a patient wife she puts up with his drinking she puts up with his shenanigans she puts up with constant cheating until finally she is done she files for divorce ned handles this not the most mature way really he runs away to mexico i'm so surprised (laughs) by this he runs away to mexico (laughs) and he's like i'm gonna file for divorce here evelyn gets an injunction Then he says, well, you can't get an injunction. I'm already remarried. And the woman he claims to be remarried to is Rose Duras. Um, She's interesting to me because she's the sister of movie star Marion Davies, who was involved with William Randolph Hearst. William Randolph Hearst. So these men, these newspaper magnates and their Hollywood starlets. Turns out, though, Ned McClain wasn't technically married to Rose. They were just shacking up. And so there wasn't a marriage. So the judge tries to get Ned to come back to D.C. He goes to Latvia instead. And the country of Latvia grants him a divorce. But Evelyn will continue to fight for a divorce in the United States. She's going to spend several years trying to get legally divorced. And his erratic behavior is going to catch up to him. The Washington Post is going to go up for sale. The uh, court is going to deem him completely mentally incapable as a co-trustee, and they basically have to do like a bargain sale for the Post. This is not the Washington Post as we think of it today, this really well-respected international newspaper. This is pre-Watergate, pre-Ben Bradley, pre-The Grams. So this was like a paper that was locally well-known, but otherwise um, had just been kind of run into ruin. So it goes up for auction. Evelyn tried to bid on the Washington Post. Uh, She bid all the way up to $600,000, but then got outbid. And she was interviewed. There's sort of this tragic newspaper article of her on that day, dressed in black like a widow. And she tells a reporter, I love this old paper. It is true I bid $600,000 to keep the Post for my boys, but I could go no higher. So she spent as much as she could 
but couldn't keep it. In 1933, the court deems him legally insane. He's committed to a psychiatric hospital, um, St. Elizabeth's here in Washington, D.C., and she has to pay, Evelyn has to pay for him to be in this insane asylum until his death in 1941. So she gets sort of saddled, unfortunately, um, with this man who just really de like uh, kind of disintegrates at the end of his life. Mm. So we're starting to see now, this is, we're getting, this is about 30 years after the Hope Diamond. And I'm not saying these are the worst tragedies that could befall somebody, but we're starting to see the loss of the prestige. We're starting to see the loss of the money. Uh, we're starting to see the loss of the business connections, her marriage, all these things are starting. Now, this is all so far, I think, things that can happen to anybody who's rich and powerful. You know, you, you be up one day, down one day, but then there's even more tragedy that starts to occur in her life. Then there's the kids. Yeah. Um, their first son is named Vincent. And uh, Vincent, he, after her brother, by the way, she was not an only child. She had a brother, Vincent, and she names her first son after her beloved brother. Both Vince, her brother, Vincent, dies real young. And her son, um, Vincent, dies at nine, age nine. Uh, he runs out into the road and gets struck by a car. He initially seems fine. The doctors examine him and say, oh, we're, we're a little concerned about um, internal bleeding. Turns out they were correct. Uh, and Vincent doesn't survive the day. So at nine, uh, at nine years old, uh, their first son dies. Their second son, John or Jock. Um, <laughs> Jock McLean. <laughs> Um, he gets married three times. Um, his uh, wife wants nothing to do, his third wife wants nothing to do with the Hope Diamond because of the curse. And they have a daughter also named Evelyn, uh, or Evie, as she's known. Uh, Evie marries a senator, Robert Rice Reynolds. Robert Rice Reynolds is 57 years old when he marries the 19-year-old Evie McLean. He is on his fifth wife. She's his fifth wife. And also, as if this isn't bad enough, Robert Rice Reynolds was a Nazi apologist. So he's pretty much trash. Um, <laughs> I want our listeners to know that when we do notes about what we're going to talk about, we often share notes with each other. And Rebecca literally added to the notes, he's trash to make sure that people knew that Robert Rice Reynolds was a trash human. Yeah, he was trash. Um, their marriage, as you can imagine, with four previous marriages under his belt, he's probably not the best husband. Their marriage doesn't go that great. Uh, and indeed, uh, Evie is going to die of an overdose of sleeping pills five years later. So at only 24 years old, uh, she's going to die of an accidental, so they say, uh, overdose. Uh, and their youngest child, Edward Beale McLean Jr., uh, also gets married four times. So two children live past the age of 25 and have seven marriages between them, which seems like a lot. A lot, a lot. And Evelyn, I think it's hard, but her as a parent, she has to live through all this. She has to live through all this tragedy of losing two of her children way before their time, seeing her children be so unhappy in their lives, so unhappy in their marriages. Um, she tries to, I think later in life, be a little bit more charitable. I think she matures as she gets older after Ned's death in particular. She um, actually does give away a lot of money, even though she has less and less of it as the years go on. She takes on massive debt to do things like loaning out the mansion on Massachusetts Avenue to the Red Cross during World War II rent-free so that they could use it as their headquarters. 
but she ends up really in pretty bad financial straits. When it comes time to sell the Walsh mansion, it sells in 1951 to Indonesia. They buy it to turn it into an embassy. They bought it for $300,000. $335,000 in 1951. That's not even a million dollars today. So you think they spent $24 million in American money building it and it sold for less than 1 million. So it was really um, in terrible disarray by the end of Evelyn's life. She also, uh, Evelyn, she, again, pretty fascinating. She, they have another house in Georgetown that gets, uh, ends up being sold. It's condos now. It was the, they call it was called friendship. It came from the McLean side. So um, it's still there today, but it was the friendship estate, which is like such a hopeful name for so many tragic things. That's where Vincent, where he was hit by the car right outside of the friendship estate. And when she dies, the Hope Diamond is eventually sort of purchased by Harry Winston, who decides that jewels like this should be seen. And he sends the Hope Diamond on a sort of, uh, cross-country tour along with a bunch of other jewels to sort of display it and then eventually he's contacted by the Smithsonian and through a series of negotiations they he decides to donate it uh, so that it has a permanent home in Washington and he actually Harry Winston is going to put the hope diamond in the in the mail like sends it parcel post like a normal like package um, to uh, the Smithsonian uh, he insures it for a million dollars, sends it by mail, and uh, it ends up uh, at the Smithsonian. It's been in the Smithsonian's care since 1958 uh, and has never left their care. And you can actually see it today. Well, not, not today. today. <laughs> when the Smithsonian's reopen, it's in the gemology exhibit. It's got its own case. Uh, it's gorgeous. And if it looks weirdly familiar to you, the movie Titanic has yes. the heart of the ocean. It is inspired. By it is that. inspired by that. And it is not, by the way, my favorite piece in the gemology exhibit, but that's neither here nor there. And I was told quite recently by someone who works at the Smithsonian that it is, there's no real way to put a value on the Hope Diamond. It's something that's sort of beyond value, it's invaluable. However, it is insured, they have to insure pieces of this nature, it's insured for close to half a billion dollars. Whew, boy. Yeah, so Ooh, that's, boy. Where, that's where we're, we're at with the Hope Diamond. Um, yikes, half a billion dollars. Yeah, sometimes people ask on tours, like, you know, you, you look at, I don't know, you look at something, somebody goes, well, how much would this cost today if you wanted to buy it? Or what would this be worth? And you're like, how do I put a figure on it? But with the Hope Diamond, half a billion seems like both too much and yet not enough, yes. considering its incredible history and its connection to these incredible people. So I actually start my Hope Diamond story a little bit different. I kind of started further back at the beginning. Uh, so the diamond was originally the like the third eye, like a, a centerpiece uh, in this Hindu statue in India. Uh, and then a, um, a, a French gem merchant, Jean-Baptiste Tavignier, stole it uh, in like the, the middle of the 1600s. And before he could even get to wherever he was going, I think it was Russia, uh, he's ripped to shreds, torn to bits by rabid dogs. Uh, and then from then it keeps going on from person to person because everyone was trying to make a profit uh, they're trying to sell it they had 
you know, ill intentions with it until Harry Winston donates it to the Smithsonian because he's not trying to make money. He has pure heart, pure intentions with it. And that is where the curse ends. I would be remiss if we didn't mention one thing that happened to Evelyn Walsh McLean, just because it connects to another one of our podcast episodes and connects to, uh, I'm sure, a topic we'll get to eventually. But she was duped later in her life, late-ish, midlife, by a man named Gaston Means. If you are like me and watch too much television, you might remember Gaston Means from Boardwalk Empire, uh, the HBO show with C. Buscemi. Gaston Means was a real guy. He was a con man, a fixer, a bootlegger, all sorts of things, and he was connected to Warren G. Harding, connected to the McLeans, and he is going to dupe her during the Lindbergh baby kidnapping crisis. He basically tells her that he has a, a line to the kidnappers, like he's connected to them, which he's not, but she doesn't know this, and that he needs $100,000 to get information about where the baby is. And so she gives it to him. And he comes back a few weeks later and he still can't find these guys. He needs another couple thousand dollars for expenses. And she gives that to him. And then he comes back for more because he apparently doesn't know when to quit. And um, at this point, Evelyn Walsh McLean calls shenanigans. And it's revealed that he's basically taken all her money. He has absolutely no connection to either the Lindberghs or the kidnappers of their baby. Uh, And so she kind of gets totally taken in by this confidence uh, man confidence man. I like the the full term. Gaston Means also wrote a book called The Strange Death of President Harding, 1933. Uh, I'm sorry, in 1930. And in this, he essentially accuses First Lady Florence Harding of murdering her husband. And I think in a future episode, we will have to address if she did, and if so, why she may have been inclined to do so. I feel like literally every single person we've talked about today can be their own episode. Yeah, this was a time of like insanity. I've also, this is unsubstantiated, um, but it's repeated in so many books about Ned McLean, but that he overlapped with Zelda Fitzgerald for a brief period and that they danced and partied at St. Elizabeth's together um, when he was held in the asylum. So um, this really is, I think, a roaring 20s life. You know, they they come into this Gilded Age boom. They're living it up in the 20s. And right about the same time that the Depression happens, everything starts to tumble for them. And it's not just the Depression that changes their lives. It's Ned. It's his drinking. It's this diamond, maybe the curse. Um, but I think it's a really great story that's kind of traces the arc of the roaring 20s um the high 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 and then that crash they're such great avatars of the 20s and like what's that zelda fitzgerald said they're beautiful little idiots like that's super the walsh mcleans so much the pretty Um, and the damned right or the beautiful and the damned (laughs) so becca here's the question though i feel like we can't end this podcast without asking do you believe that it's cursed are you a believer or are you a skeptic I think in the case of Evelyn Walsh McLean, truly the curse of her life was Ned. Um, she marries very quickly. They they were young and foolish and rich and in love, um, but she didn't stop to think about what a life married to a man like that would be. So I think when it comes to Evelyn, almost everything bad that happens to her can be traced to him, not the diamond. I do think there's something to be said, though, for what Candon said, which is the first time the diamond is passed on with a pure intent, uh, full of donation, all of these associated events stop. And so I have to wonder if something that was stolen, that was taken with ill intent, 
might carry with it some uh, bad karma. Yeah, fair. I think I fall down the middle, you know. I'm not saying it is, but I'm not saying it ain't. Okay. You don't want to get on the diamond's bad side. No, I go to the true. Natural History Museum all the time. I was going to say, I'm there a lot. I don't want to. It's not like they can get that close to it anyway. I don't stand close to it. I talk to people about it away and then send them to go look at it. As you should, as a good tour guide. It's not even my favorite piece in that exhibit. Not even no. close. I think if we wanted to be good tour guides too, we should mention this beautiful mansion, the Walsh McLean mansion we've been talking about, is the Embassy of Indonesia still today. Um, you can see it on our Embassy Row tour, our dark side of DuPont tour. Um, if you do a self-guided walk up Embassy Row, you cannot miss it. It's huge and beautiful. But um, at usually every spring in May, uh, we have Passport DC or Cultural Tourism DC, where uh, many of the embassies open their doors, including Indonesia. And so if you ever participate in that event, most likely it'll be next next spring, although I'm hoping maybe we'll get a fall event because of coronavirus. But um, if you ever get a chance to participate in that open door uh, opportunity, go check out the Indonesian embassy because you get this glimpse back into this really ornate, incredible, gilded age nouveau riche ridiculousness that was this mansion it's just something you have to see to believe really and, and look, look very closely, closely for that, that golden gold nugget. nugget yeah they they say at the embassy they've looked for the golden bar and they can't find it yeah but if i was at the embassy that is absolutely what i would say i would tell everyone that i looked for it and oh couldn't find it but in reality i found it kept it secret just keeping it in my back pocket because <laughs> Apparently that's where I keep my gold. So another episode of Tour Guide Tell All, another wild woman of Washington. We're just going to work our way through all of Candon's books. Yeah, I like this idea. I obviously find this topic fascinating. So we should go through all of my wild women and any wild women who are featured in uh, Broadway musicals. How's that sound? So maybe maybe we'll end up in a Cole Porter song someday. <laughs> oh, someday. Wait, he's he's not alive, right? No. I guess a Lin-Manuel Miranda song would be like the next best thing for me today. Lynn, if you're listening, I'm a huge fan of your work. Yes, Lynn, if you are listening, please write a musical about us talking about history. For inspiration, you can listen to all of our past podcasts and maybe you can become our next patron. So I was directing that comment specifically to Lynn Mel Miranda, uh, but it actually applies to any of y'all listening who aren't already patrons. We want to say a special hello to Tom, Deirdre, and Shelby, our newest patrons this week. The support of our patrons helps us to survive 2020. And in exchange, they get early episodes and special episodes. Uh, you can also support us by shopping at our store. Link in the show notes. It's too late now to get something in time for Christmas. Uh, but with the way that the USPS has been working and we totally support the postal workers thanks to ricky my mailman who does listen to my podcast um but yeah so with the the current and constant delays you know new year's presents might be a thing this year so just go ahead and hop on that uh, you can buy some mugs or t-shirts or pillows stickers uh, from our store you can talk to us on social media email us at tourguidetellall at gmail.com leave us a review on whatever platform you are using right now uh, or if you're feeling especially cheerful today, maybe leave a review on all of the platforms. I'm your host, Candon Arseniega. Dan King and I do the intros, the editing, the admin. Becca Grawl and Rebecca Fackner do the research and the talking. We are all guides for free tours by foot in Washington, D.C. 
This is Tour Guide Tell All. Until next time, 